This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture readings this morning are from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 12, verse 27, and chapter 13, verses 30 through 31. This reading is found on page 408 in the Bibles there in your rows if you'd like to turn there and follow along as I read. Nehemiah 12, 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And then Nehemiah 13, 30 through 31. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites in each his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for my good. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name's Josh, and glad to be with you this morning. I was away last week and uh, missed you all, uh, and glad to be back uh, today to finish our last week in our series on the book of Nehemiah. Now, next week, we're going to kind of rewind in time a little bit uh, to go back to where we left off in the book of 1 Samuel last summer. So we're going to pick up a series on the life of David, which is couple hundred years before all these events uh, that are happening in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, we'll we'll pick up in 1 Samuel 16, I believe it is, and and go all the way through the end of 2 Samuel uh, for the end of the summer. But that's next week. Today, just want to focus on finishing the book of Nehemiah. And of course, today is uh, Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, dads. I hope you enjoy your socks or tie or whatever it is you got for Father's Day. I uh, changed it up a little bit uh, this year. I asked for cobbler, like the dessert, not the shoe guy. Uh, Cobbler and a nap. That's what I want. So I'm really looking forward to this afternoon. I'm going to eat a lot of cobbler, and I'm going to fall asleep for a couple hours, I hope. Uh, It's going to be a great afternoon. It's also Juneteenth. Mike mentioned that at the beginning uh, of the service. Juneteenth is the oldest celebration of the end of slavery in the United States, recognized every year on June 19th because in Texas, where it was first a state holiday before it became a federal holiday, in in Texas, slaves learned of the Emancipation Proclamation on June 19th, 1865, full two and a half years after the initial announcement. News didn't travel fast in the 19th century, but also some were interested in concealing that information. Uh, for a while as well. So it's a celebration on June 19th of the end of slavery in our land. Now, neither Father's Day nor Juneteenth are religious holidays per se, uh, nor are they part of the religious calendar or uh, the liturgical calendar. And the scripture passage that we're looking at this morning isn't directly related to either of those days either. But it is worth noting, as we read about Nehemiah's final reforms... That Nehemiah, uh, he touches not only on the temple life or the worship life of Israel, but also on family life, also on civic life. And of course, Father's Day and Juneteenth are about family life and social, civic life. And perhaps holidays like these are one of the ways that we keep the Protestant spirit of Semper Reformanda that is always reforming alive in all the areas of our 
life together. But let's get into the text uh, this morning. So you hold those ideas maybe in your head a little bit, but let's get into the text. Nehemiah, if you haven't been here for a while, Nehemiah is the story of the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the Babylonian invasion. The city had been decimated, and Nehemiah then leads a team to do a rebuilding effort. Specifically, they are working on rebuilding the city's walls. And today we're going to look at just the last few chapters, and I think you're going to want your Bibles open for this. We just read a few verses this morning, but I'm going to refer to a lot more in chapter 12 and chapter 13. Again, starting on page 408, if you're using one of the Bibles in the rows there. And in these last couple of chapters of Nehemiah, we see the good, the bad, and the scary. That's how we're going to look at it this morning. First, the good. All right, This is the dedication of the wall. And the end of chapter 12 really is a great ending to this story. The walls are done, but now they have a dedication service. Chapter 12, verse 27, I'll read it again. Abby just read it, but I'll read it again. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the first thing to note here is that this is a celebration, right? It says to celebrate the dedication with gladness. And of course it is a celebration. Of course this is about joy, right? They had worked so hard to bring this to be. They had overcome so many obstacles to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And now it's time to party. And there is a sense in which the the dominant note of our life together as God's people ought to be that same kind of joy and celebration. Our worship services together ought to reflect this note. We come together after all to point to the work of the Lord. We highlight His grace. We lift up and value His character. And we rejoice as we do so. Look at verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. So joy and enthusiasm ought to be part of our life together as God's people, specifically of our worship together as God's people. Uh, In the Roman Empire, when the Colosseums would fill up with spectators, the crowds would cheer on the gladiators. If you've seen the uh, Russell Crowe movie, you might remember this. When they cheer the gladiators, when they cheer for the victors, do you remember what they would say? They would yell out, Axios! Axios, which is the Greek word for you are worthy. You are worthy. And when the book of Revelation shows us what worship is like in heaven, the crowds are chanting, Axios, Axios, you are worthy. To the real victor, to the real champion. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, Axios, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, Axios, to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And here in Nehemiah, they celebrate with great joy, because he's worthy. They also celebrate, it says, with music and singing. Chapter 12, verse 27, it says, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And also I want you to note here that it was loud. 
They turn the volume way up, right? Up to 11, spinal tap kind of thing. Verse 43, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And John Wesley, founder of Methodist Church, used to talk about this a lot. He lamented when folks, churchgoers, thought that they could somehow just uh, worship God by studying and contemplating the glory of God and somehow have that not translate into loud, joyful sounds of praise. He lamented this and he said this. He said, and we have the words I think here, sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, no more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang bar songs. <laughs> you should sing as, at least as loud in church on Sunday mornings as you do at karaoke or in the shower, or at a concert, or in your car when your favorite song comes on. And I don't really have any, um, you know, specific Father's Day applications this morning other than to say, um, dads, and, and, and by the way, I, I don't mean this as a, I, there's a lot of parent pressure out there. Uh, I don't want to add to that this morning, but take this as a, a gentle exhortation in the spirit in which it's intended. But dads... Your children are watching how you participate in worship. Little boys in particular are looking at you to see what do men do in the worship of the Lord. Do we sing to the Lord? Is it manly to worship to the Lord? To put it another way or to put it theologically, your kids are wondering, is God worth praising? You can show them by how you engage in worship, by how you sing so first, this is a, a celebration. But secondly, note that it is characterized by thanksgiving. Thanksgiving or gratitude is acknowledging that God is the source of all good gifts. Thanksgiving is taking the time to take stock of what God has done and then to marvel at his grace toward us. Colossians chapter 3 in the New Testament says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, you say grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera, grace before the play and the pantomime, grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. A little bit of a one-upper there, but <laughs> all of life is his point. All of life should be full of gratitude and thanksgiving, acknowledging God as the giver of all good gifts. But here's the key point. The Bible urges us not just to give thanks generally, but to give thanks to God specifically. And if you think about this for a minute, real gratitude, you know, is always personal, right? It's not enough to just be thankful, in general, or to tweet hashtag blessed. But in gratitude, in real gratitude, we are recognizing the one who has blessed us, right? And, and, and that's what the people of Israel are doing here. They build the wall. It was hard work on their part. It was great leadership on Nehemiah's part. But behind all of it, and that's what they're trying to recognize, behind all of this is the work of God. And they're calling attention. They're spotlighting that fact Pretty much every November, 
Sunday before Thanksgiving, I try to make the point here, if you've been here before, maybe you remember this, I try to make the point uh, the week before Thanksgiving or the Sunday before Thanksgiving that we ought to be the very best people amongst our neighbors and in our city. We ought to be the very best at celebrating Thanksgiving dinner together. We, we ought to be the best at it, right? Not because we're better people, not because we're better cooks, but because we get more practice than anyone else. At the very center of our worship service, every single week is a Thanksgiving meal, right? No cranberries, no turkey there, but bread and wine pointing us to Jesus' body and blood. And that, the term Eucharist, which is often used for the Lord's Supper, Eucharistos means Thanksgiving, giving thanks. And we come to the Lord's table here in just a few moments. We're doing very much something in the spirit of Nehemiah chapter 12. We're giving thanks for the work of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, in our lives. So there's celebration, there's thanksgiving, and then lastly, of course, the whole uh, occasion is dedication. The walls that they built were then dedicated, set apart for the Lord. And you know, the wall around Jerusalem, this was a wonderful thing. It gave them protection Gave them rest from their enemies, right? There's a constant anxiety when you think you could be attacked. You think you could be at risk. It gave them rest. It gave them freedom to worship God. It gave them peace, peace and space to love their neighbor. We said a few weeks ago that we, we, we don't put our hope in any human city. We don't put our hope in any human structure. Our citizenship is in heaven. We labor on for the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean that the walls are nothing. That doesn't mean we shouldn't take delight and joy and celebrate blessings that exist here and now. You know, this building that you're sitting in this morning was built, I don't know if you know this, but it was built 100 years ago. 1922 is the cornerstone that got on the front corner there of the church. 1922, and the people who built it uh, called it the Church Beautiful when they were putting it together. It was a labor of love for the congregation that they raised money for it over course of several years. They worked hard to see this structure created. It was meant to be a space for worship and for community and mission here on the corner of Floral and Washington. And when it was completed, 1924, April, I think, of 1924, is that what it says down there? Yeah. April of 1924, they had a dedication service, much of what, like, is happening in our story this morning. The congregation gathered together, they gave thanks, they celebrated, and then they dedicated this space to the work of the Lord. And we are the beneficiaries of that now, 100 years on. Now, we only moved in here eight years ago, but it's not lost on us. And we're stepping into something that goes a lot further back. We're stepping into something that was set apart for the work of the Lord by people who've gone before us. Now, here we are at the end of chapter 12. This would be a great place for the book of Nehemiah to end, right? Happy ending. Dedication of the wall. If Nehemiah had an editor, I am 100% certain they would have told him to stop there, cut the 13th chapter, not worth it, just stop right here. But alas, life is more complicated than most storybook endings are, and therefore the Bible, as a reflector of life in this world, is more complicated than most storybook endings. And so as this book goes on, we've seen the good, but now there's the bad, the need for further reform. Chapter 13, verse 6, tells us that 
Nehemiah goes back to Persia. Now remember, he had been a high-ranking official in the Persian court, the cupbearer to the king, and after coming to do this rebuilding, after 12 years rebuilding the walls, and then he was acting as the governor in Jerusalem, now he goes back to Persia, goes back to the emperor, and it says he was gone for some time. Now we don't know how long that is, but all the commentators will tell you, all the Bible historians will tell you, it has to be several years at least, just based on what the journey would have been like, what would have been required of him as he goes back to report in at the, uh, the court of the emperor. So Nehemiah goes away, and then when he comes back, he finds in Jerusalem, you know, he's been gone for some time, he comes back, he finds the walls intact, but the spiritual life of the people crumbling down. The city had settled down into a comfortable compromise with the Gentile world in his absence. In verse 30 and 31, at the very end of Nehemiah, is a summary of what he does in response to this. He says, Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. I think it was Julius Caesar. He said, I came, I saw, I conquered. And Nehemiah, different spin on it. He says, I cleansed, I established, I provided. And that's what he does. He said, first, I cleansed. And there was a lot uh, that needed cleansing, a lot of cleaning up that needed to happen. First, in the temple itself, there needed to be some cleansing. Starting in verse 4, we learn that Tobiah had taken up residence in the temple. In fact, he got a room, it says, the size of a, a small warehouse, and he moved all his personal stuff in, and he moved all the vessels of the temple out, including all the stuff that the priests and the Levites needed to do their work. Just imagine this for a second. Uh, put it in contemporary terms. Uh, next summer, I'll have a sabbatical, so I'll be gone for a couple months. Imagine I go on the sabbatical and I come back only to find out that Pastor Ryan has taken up residence in the sanctuary, all right? I get back and I realize that Ryan has moved out the first few, you know, three or four pews in every uh, section here so he can do his morning exercises. He's brushing his teeth in the baptismal font. He's eating cereal on the communion table, taking naps in the balcony. He's got his feet propped up on the piano keys so we can watch the game on the screen. Now, that would be weird, right? <laughs> and see, I mean, I'm also stating this preemptively. Ryan, you cannot move into the sanctuary, right? That would be weird. That would be strange and something I'd have to take care of. <laughs> but in Nehemiah 13, it's way worse. You see, Ryan and I are friends, but Tobiah, if you remember from the beginning of the book, Tobiah was Nehemiah's mortal enemy. And not like, oh, this guy cut me off in traffic kind of enemy, but a for real kind of enemy. Tobiah slandered Nehemiah all over town. He tried to sabotage the rebuilding efforts. He, at one point, attempted to hire a hitman to knock Nehemiah off. So this is a, a for real enemy, okay, in every sense of that word. And now he's living in the temple. How in the world does this happen? Now, Nehemiah had won the day when he was there in Jerusalem, but then when he goes away, all right, uh, Tobiah slides right back in. Tobiah was well-connected. He was even related to the high priest, we're told, and as Nehemiah goes away, he slides right back into a place of prominence and power, even so much as moving into the temple. And so Nehemiah gets back, and he's having none of it. 
right? Much like Jesus would do a few centuries later, Nehemiah goes into the temple, he sees it being defamed, and he cleans house, turns over his own tables, tosses Tobias out. But that's not the only cleansing that Nehemiah does. He might say that was about the worship life of Jerusalem that he was cleaning up, but he also needed to clean house with regard to the social and the economic life of Jerusalem. Remember last week, uh, if you were here, Zach talked about the things that the people of God had all come together and formally committed themselves to. And one of those things was the keeping of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given as a gift by God to the people of Israel for a number of reasons. It was meant for their joy and their rest. 52 days off a year, sort of cooked into their normal rhythms for their renewal, for their benefit, for their rest. It was also a day for worship. It was a time to recenter themselves, to remember their dependence on the Lord, to give thanks for all the things that God had done for them. The Sabbath was for justice. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 5. Israel, did you know this? Israel was the only place in the ancient world where the poor got a day off. The only place in the ancient world where the poor were not made to work seven days a week. And not only the poor, actually, animals, even the land got to rest. The Sabbath prevented the maximization of profits through the exploitation of others. It kept them humane. It kept them human. And lastly, the Sabbath was for witness. The Sabbath day immediately marked them off as distinct from their Gentile neighbors. It was a chance to show the world how much God mattered to them in a very concrete, visible, tangible way. But as you read here, starting in verse 15, you see the danger of wealth and materialism, the desire to keep up with the other nations around them, the desire to be like the culture of the Gentiles. And so they stop doing it. The Sabbath becomes like any other day. And Nehemiah addresses this right away. He even posts, it's kind of funny, he posts bouncers around town to enforce the Sabbath day. But then lastly, this cleansing touch, not just on the worship life, not just on the socioeconomic life, but it touched on the family life of Israel. Verse 23, in those days also I saw the Jews who married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Nehemiah is concerned here about the loss of distinctiveness that comes from the people of Israel intermarrying with the Gentile nations around them. And listen, you have to understand here, this is not about race or ethnicity. This is about religious belief. And we know that because there was always a place in the Old Testament for the foreigner, for the people of God coming to be part of what God is doing in Israel. Maybe the most striking example of that is, is Ruth. Ruth gets a whole book of the Bible named after her. And do you remember where she's from? She's from Moab. And she marries an Israelite man named Boaz. And this is celebrated in the Bible because Ruth has come to believe in Israel's God. She becomes part of the people of God. And she serves then as a paragon of biblical faithfulness. Ruth is even listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So this is not about race or ethnicity. It's about faith. Nehemiah is worried about syncretism. He's worried about the erosion of biblical faith as they mix their beliefs with the surrounding culture. And this concern 
Continues on into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians warns against being unequally yoked in marriage. He wants, in other words, he wants people pulling the same direction in their marriages. The New Testament, as well as the Old, teaches that if you're going to share a bed, you should share your beliefs. And for those of us who are already, uh, if you're in a mixed marriage already, religiously, the Bible says don't get out of it. That's not the solution. But labor and pray that your witness would be part of the conversion of your spouse. That's what you ought to be laboring toward. But for those of you for whom marriage is a future prospect, you need to make this an important criteria as you're considering who you might date, who you might get serious with. And parents, you need to make this important wisdom as you guide your children concerning marriage. So Nehemiah says, I cleansed. Secondly, I established. Just as Nehemiah had cleared out the temple of unworthy things, so now he's determined to fill these rooms in the temple with good things. Tobiah had been in the temple. He had displaced the priests and the Levites and the musicians. The tithes and the support for their work had also stopped, and so they had to go back home. They, uh, the Levites and the musicians and, and the priests all had left to to go find other work. In verse 10 it says, in Nehemiah verse 11 says, why is the house of God forsaken? He seeks to remedy this. The point here to understand is that now, in our day, just as then in Nehemiah's day, the worship life has to be the center of any community of faith. You know, there's lots of good things we can do or not do as a church that, you know, are up to better judgment perhaps. But as the book of Hebrews says, one thing we cannot ever leave off is meeting together for worship. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And those folks who had been pushed out of the temple priests and Levites and singers, their job was to labor for the worship life of the people. And today, pastors and church staff, along with so many volunteers, we labor to do the same. And we just had Zach Meyer's ordination service here about, I guess, what, a week and a half ago, 10 days ago or so. And at the beginning of the service, I read uh, this little passage from Eugene Peterson. I'll, I'll read it for you again. It's on the screen there. Eugene Peterson writes, the biblical fact is that there are no successful churches. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. The Holy Spirit gathers them and does his work in them. In these communities of sinners, one of the sinners is called pastor and given a designated responsibility in the community. The pastor's responsibility is to keep the community attentive to God. And Nehemiah sees right away that this is missing in Jerusalem. He once again establishes the duties of the priests and the Levites to keep the community attentive to God. I cleansed, I established, I provided, he says. Remember verse 11, he says, Why is the house of God forsaken? While Nehemiah was gone, there had developed a grudging attitude toward tithes and offerings. The prophet Malachi 
who was writing just before the time of Nehemiah, he called this kind of stinginess, he called it robbing God. Malachi 3 says this, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Answer, in your tithes and contributions. The same is happening in Nehemiah's day. And he makes sure then that they return to their regular and proportionate giving, leaning on the promise of the prophet Malachi, who in verse 10 said, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now before we move on here, and we do need to move on, let me just say that uh, this need for reform is not just for Nehemiah's day. And you read the story, it may seem a little dramatic here. I mean, Nehemiah's gone for a few years, and then psh, the whole spiritual life of the people begins to crumble. It's kind of shocking to read it. But if you think about it for a minute, just think, how long does it actually take to descend into something that's unhealthy? I think you'll find the answer is not that long. I mean, think about, just take it out of the spiritual realm for a second. Think about your own physical health. How long would it take for you to do something to wreck your physical well-being? Maybe you've heard of the movie Supersize Me. It's back from 2004. Uh, Morgan Spurlock. And it's uh, about fast food in America. It's about McDonald's in particular. I had a movie poster in the slides originally, but he has like a whole large fry in his mouth at once, and I thought it was pretty gross, so I didn't want to uh, put it on there for too long. But as a part of the movie, uh, for one month, Morgan Spurlock eats only McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now, he gets a physical from his doctor at the beginning of the film. At the end of the month, he gets another physical from the doctor, and the results are dramatic. After one month, he gained 24 and a half pounds, his cholesterol shot up 65 points. His doctor told him his liver was basically turning into pate. And if this trend continued, he would develop cirrhosis of the liver, right? This happened in one month. The Protestant declaration that we are always in need of reform, semper reformanda, always reforming, is about this. The Christian life is about continual repentance, continually returning to the Lord, continually being reshaped and reformed. You never get to check the box and say, I'm discipled. Never. The call is to press on in our faith, to take that next step of faith, whatever it is for you, and then the next one after that, and then the next one after that, and on and on and on. There's a reason that in the Bible the Christian life is likened to a walk or a journey, and not a TED Talk, right? Or not just receiving information. It's a journey because we're always reforming. The good, the bad, and finally and quickly here, the scary. Now, I, I don't know if this is the story scary to you, but it sure is to me. You see, Nehemiah, if you read this story through all in one city, Nehemiah does just about everything right. I mean, he's not perfect, but he does about as good as you can do, right? He has, I mean, he's a great leader. He has courage. He has zeal. He has skills. And still, the people slide away at the end. And do you know what this means? This means you and I don't have as much control 
as we think we do. My friend Elliot Grudem told me once, a pastor mentor of mine, he, uh, he said, Josh, you know, when somebody comes into your office, my office is over there, that's why I'm pointing that way. Uh, when somebody comes into your office, he said, you know, Josh, you have a responsibility to do a good job with that interaction. You have a responsibility to give good counsel and to give good care, but you can't control the outcome. He said, at best, Josh, you're 33% of the equation, right? What you, your good job that you need to do with that, you're at best 33% of the equation because that other person who's sitting on the other side of the desk, uh, they bring a volitional self into that meeting as well. They have a will, they have a mind, they have agency in this world, and so they're at least 33%. And then we believe the Holy Spirit has to show up, right? The Holy Spirit has to work, and I'm sure we're selling him short with 33%. But you get the idea, right? You do have a responsibility to steward your part of things well, but your part is not all determinative of outcomes. And friends, this is true in ministry. This is true in parenting. This is true in your work. This is true in how you love your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers. You are called to do your part well, but you can't control the outcome. Now, I hope that's freeing to you a little bit. But it's also really scary, especially when you are really concerned about those outcomes. So then, if that's true, what's left to do? And I just want you to look at the last line of the book of Nehemiah. Actually, it's repeated three times in chapter 13. But the last line is, remember me, O God. Remember me, O God. Remember me, O oh God. At the end of the day, Nehemiah knows how uncertain his fruitfulness is. And so he commits his cause, commits his life to the only safe hands in all of the universe. He entrusts it all to the Lord. Remember me, O oh God. And that's what you and I are called to do as well. Yes, do a good job with all your responsibilities, all your interactions, all your relationships. Be a good steward of your ministry, your job, your parenting, your work, your relationships. Take all of that seriously, but at the end of the day, we need to entrust it to the Lord. Remember me, oh God. So maybe the question you need to think about today is, is what do you need to give over to the Lord this week? What do you need to entrust to him? Even as you... Work diligently to do the right things. What, where do you need to say, remember me, oh God? And as I was studying this passage this week, I started thinking of another time in the Bible where somebody said, remember me, and then has to cast himself entirely upon the grace of the Lord. Luke 23, Jesus is hanging on the cross, crucified between Two thieves, a thief on either side of him. One of the thieves mocks Jesus. The other one says, Luke 23, 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The way we come to Jesus is like that thief. Nothing to add, no merit to bring, just Remember me, God. Remember me, Jesus, when you come into the kingdom. Throwing yourself completely on the mercy of the Lord. That's the way you begin a life with Jesus. 
That's actually also how you continue in your life with Jesus. Even as we try diligently to do his work in his way and represent him well, we continually throw ourselves on his mercy. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Let's pray together, and then we'll come to the Lord's Supper. Lord, we ask that you would meet with us today. You have told us that your presence remains among us. You're present to us in the Holy Spirit, the helper sent to live in and guide your church in the world. You're present, we're told, when two or more are gathered together in your name, like we're doing right now. And you're present in the good and the bad and the scary times of our lives. And you're present to us in the Lord's Supper, which we get to celebrate now when we receive this in faith. And so we ask, Lord, that you would meet with us, that you would do a work in us, comfort us, challenge us, be with us, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.